This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. Stream is an expert interview transcript library with more than 10,000 interviews spanning across all industries, including tech, media, consumer goods, and plenty more. Not to mention 70% of these experts can be found only exclusively on Stream. Thanks to many of the interviews that I've read on Stream, I feel like I've gained a much more intimate understanding of the companies that I cover. And at this point, it has become an integral piece of my research process. So if you want to check out some of their transcripts, transcripts for yourself, you can go to streamrg.co slash CCM and sign up for a free 14-day trial using the promo code CCM. Again, that's streamrg.co slash CCM, S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G dot C-O slash CCM. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. This is our Thursday deep dive interview where we have on an analyst to discuss a single stock in depth. And today we are talking with Strat Becker about Build-A-Bear Probably a company that a lot of people are familiar with, probably a stock that they are not. Um, highlights from the interview. What do you have? Ooh. I mean, the first highlight is just the discussion on the valuation of why it's so cheap. That just popped out to me. I mean, five times earnings when that, you know, you have to investigate why something's trading at five times earnings, especially something that's been around for as long as Build-A-Bear has. Uh, we go through that, why that is the case. I love to talk about the activist investors and how they push for things that the management team has slowly started to implement and has really helped, you know, returning capital to shareholders and stuff like that. And also why Build-A-Bear might be a bit more durable um, and have a competitive advantage than people might think. I mean, overall, really great pitch. Strat is another. We've had a string of college or young analysts coming on the show and always very impressive. Um yeah. So yeah, another you know another great young analyst to to join the show. Hopefully, yeah. we'll have him on again. Yeah, we have had kind of a string here of of really high quality uh, college age investors, um, and I think you'll see it with Strat uh, here as well. So we don't need to go any longer. Without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome in. Today we are joined by Strat Becker. We came across Strat really through a recommendation from a recurring guest, Connor Mack, who said we need to get either Strat or Paul, who has been on the show before, to talk Build-A-Bear. And you've done a lot of work on Build-A-Bear. You've actually done some Substack work. So I'm going to give you a chance to give a little sales pitch here for any of the listeners that want to read more of your work. What, uh, What does the Substack entail? Yeah, so I make a subset called Do Your Diligence, play on words, obviously. Um, and there's a few things on there. I have some company deep dives that I've done in the past. So, you know, at least on Build-A-Bear, I have a really long thesis laid out from January. I have some things that I went independently into some of the growth initiatives they're taking to model out what they could look like for the business. Um, and just a couple of things where I've updated my priors as new information's come in to really reflect and see, you know, what was I right about? What was I wrong about? Why? Um, and I have similar things on quite a few companies. And right now, at least I'm shifting into making these one page stock pitches where it's just, you know, one page, about 300 words laying out 
uh, everything that you need to know about a potential investment idea. And I'll be trying to throw in some short audio snippets to give you know a two to five minute explanation of that as well. So if that sounds interesting, I'd highly encourage you to check it out. And is it free? It is absolutely free. And that's not going to change. All right, then there's no excuse not to sign up. We'll have the link in the show notes. So everyone go check that out. Now, we uh, when we start, when, when we ask and we figure out what company we're going to do, Brett and I start researching the company. We try to find some questions. And sometimes we can instantly tell whether or not we're like super intrigued by the company. I got to say with Build-A-Bear, um, it's, it's a brand a lot of people know. And I think we were both came away pretty intrigued. So I'm excited for this one. How did you find Build-A-Bear, not the company, but the stock in the first place? Um, and then maybe, I don't know if it's like a super known international concept, but for anyone that doesn't know what Build-A-Bear is, could you maybe like briefly describe the concept? Yeah. So I'll, I'll go with the concept first. So it's basically just a store where you go in, you get to just make your own stuffed animals. So you just pick out you know, do you want like a bear or a dinosaur? You know, they do Pokemon and other licensed characters, whichever like shell of a stuffed animal you want. And then you'll get to just, you know, the company will say how you get to bring it to life through, uh, you know, putting sound effects in it, you know, beating hearts. You get to put the stuffing in it yourself, throw on clothes, whatever, name it, whatnot, uh, to really make it feel like an experience and that it's your own. Um, and I think like most people, at least in the United States, you know, I knew them from when I was a kid. I got one back then, uh, almost 15 years ago, probably something like that. Um, but I only found out it was a stock after I saw a press release pop up uh, on my feed uh, about 18 months ago after they had some pretty strong results. And I was like, you can own this because I had no idea um, that a company that that is generally so well known in the States would not only be public, but be I guess that's small in the market cap range that it was at, which it still is at today, around 200 million. All right. Do you want to talk about how the company's changed over the years? I'm sure a lot of, I don't think most of our listeners are the target demographic. So they probably uh, had an experience with it a long time ago. So how's it kind of evolved over the last two decades? And then you, you, you've written about their physical footprint changing as well. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So I think the biggest change in how the company works is if you're talking from you know before 2008 and especially before 2015 it was basically just an in-store in-mall experience targeted towards kids so that's why most people who know about the business would be involved with it as a kid maybe they got a gift or two and then not really care about it as an adult the change has been uh really trying to engage older customers expand the age demographic that's applicable and to change the use case away from just um you know in-store experience to also uh gifting impulse purchases and so on to make it just more applicable to older people but um give more cases to generate sales um and that's one of the reasons that the physical footprint has changed as well uh so in 2015 92 percent of the locations were these traditional formats that most people are probably familiar with uh where you know it's a couple thousand square feet um and you have all the stations and bells and whistles uh, in a mall. Today, that's just 55%. And if you include uh, these little concourses, which are you know 200 square feet, you know much lower fixed cost that they put um, not in a dedicated store spot in a mall, but like in the hall, they're about 65% in malls today at the end of Q2. Um, and they haven't actually left many malls fully. The change is that they've been able to start growing their footprint out a lot in tourist locations where they've 
more than tripled their store count the last few years. Uh, and also third party, where they went from four locations uh, in 2015 up to 65 today. Um, so it's really growing where there's opportunity and better store foot traffic and you know downsizing or closing out of certain areas in malls that aren't attractive for them. Do you know how many, can you give a reference to how many stores they have just for reference of the size of the business? Yeah, so they have at the end of Q2 uh, in North America, about 378 locations. So um, 209 of those would be their traditional in mall style. And they have about another 39 or so that are those concourses. And then the rest of them are um, either tourist locations. They have you know a couple seasonal spots. Um, 22 of their stores are actually like store in stores inside of Walmarts. So um, you'll have that. And then uh, there's third party stuff, which uh, kind of varies in location because some of them are on cruise ships, some of them are on resorts, um, you know, in the Caribbean, and they just count under the North American branch. But that's the general North American footprint. I think I believe you may have been the first person I've seen call it this, but the mall apocalypse is sort of what they've been having to evolve away from. Yeah. And it sounds like they've done a pretty good job with that. Um, you want to you want to talk on the uh, other? Yeah. So, segments? you know, we know that core retail operations fairly easy to understand. But reading your write up, the one with Paul, which, again, we'll link in the show notes if anyone wants to read that. Um, what other segments? Because they're doing quite a few different things that they're exploring for the next kind of few years. What do you think has the most promise uh, to kind of be meaningful for Build-A-Bear? Yeah. So I think there's a few. Uh, the first one that. I got to see in person back when it was a prototype in December is um, this automatic tending machine thing. It's basically a vending machine, um, you know, where you have like a touch screen and you can pick out, um, you know, what bear you want, what accessories you want, and just have it drop through. And that's one of the things where they're targeting, you know, a different use case. So this is um, often going to be in airports or children's hospitals. So you're going to see someone or you traveled somewhere and you need to get gifts for someone on the last second. You'll just see this and pick something up really quick. Um, and that has the potential to be an over $20 million annual revenue driver and add over $5 million of EBITDA uh, within the next five years. And that's assuming they can only put, um, you know, one machine per airport right now. So follow up there. Does that, yeah. does it have all of the similar mechanics to like the in-store uh, if you're able to like bring it to life kind of thing? Or is it kind of like already stuffed and made? Does it does it does it erode yeah. the customer experience at all? Yeah, that's the important thing because it's a different use case. It doesn't erode the value proposition for the in store. So either these vending machines come pre stuffed. You know, there's no labor in them. It's you know obviously much smaller square footage, so the costs are just way less. Um, but because it's targeting the impulse buyer, it doesn't sacrifice the people that would be looking for an experience with the brand. Because if that's what you want, you can still just go to the store and get that yourself. Yeah, I honestly think just discussing out loud, it seems like the perfect way to acquire new customers, especially a parent. Some, I don't know, I'm just thinking a dad on a business trip or a mom on a business trip wants to get a gift for their kid. They're coming home like two weeks later and they're like, oh, okay, this one looks perfect. The kid gets it and then they're a building bear customer for life. Um, speaking though, I have one other follow-up on the retail operations. Are they in any international areas? Um, or is it mainly just a North American business? Yeah. So about 88% of their total retail sales are from North America. So that's virtually all the United States and then a very tiny snippet of Canada. And then back in the early 2000s, they bought out their only um, 
direct competitor, which was located in the UK. So they have right now in the UK and Ireland, 39 locations. Um, and outside of those company operating spots, they have 64 spots in uh, the Middle East, Asia, um, Oceania, and South America that are uh, franchised. Um, so there's check collectors in that instance. Gotcha. I would think, yeah, I would think this would work in East Asia, um, but maybe they haven't had too much success there. We uh, our, we interrupted our, them briefly. What were some is there any? Other, yeah, is there any other? Before we get to the next question, are there any other segments you find promising? Yeah. So you know, outside of ATMs, they also just announced uh, a couple of new things in their recent earnings report that uh, were being pushed for for a while by some activists um, that are coming to fruition that are exciting. So they're going into pet stores with an outbound licensing deal. So. Capital light, they're not really putting capital into it. They're going to get, you know, uh, royalties off of it in 1,600 PetSmart locations starting later in October. Um, and after a certain time period, that's going to be no longer exclusive to just in PetSmart stores. They'll be able to expand that out to uh, all, you know, online and physical pet retailers that they want to and can get deals for. Um, because the terms aren't, you know, fully public yet, you know, it's hard to ascertain uh exactly how much of a driver that will be for the company but it's certainly attractive and has long-term potential um and they're also launching uh a pajama product line um you know their logic is that if people are going to have their bears with them when they go to sleep um you know why not try to span a bit more into the things that people are using uh at night and they're trying to use that particularly as a holiday sales driver uh you know especially since families like to get you know matching pajamas for the season this episode is brought to you by stratosphere.io, the best web-based research terminal for company-specific metrics like KPIs and segment revenues. The service saves time, has a beautiful inter interface, and has the best data visualizations on the internet for equities. Now, our favorite features are the 10 years of data with data visualizations. This includes company-specific KPIs, charts for all the financial metrics you might be interested in, and stuff specifically for that company. So for example, if you're looking at a payments company, you might have take rates, you might have GMV. If you're looking at a marketplace, you'll have GMV as well. All that good stuff that can get you updated on your research process. If you wanna get started today for free, go to stratosphere.io and start utilizing the powerful research terminal. Again, that is stratosphere.io. The link is in the show notes. We hope you'll join us on there today. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Makes sense. All right. Have they had any success in e-commerce? I mean, what percentage, if they have explored this, is it as of the to overall revenue? And have they really executed with that build a bear model 
um, in an online format? Because I, I would think if you could gamify it a bit, kind of make it sort of an interactive experience, it, it could be quite fun for kids to do. Yeah, I, I think it's important to say off the bat too, this is another situation where the target customer is different. So uh, the priority target for in-store sales is kids, but the priority target for online sales is adults that um, either want to get gifts or be collectors. Um, you know, everyone knows their Funko Pops, um, you know, and all the, the licensed products that people kind of just get latched onto, they're replicating that. Um, so right now it's about 18% of the retail sales, which is, you know, over 15% of total sales comes from their online channel. And that's from under 4% in 2015 and under 9% in 2019. So being able to pull this forward a good amount. Um, and uh, they do have some of those gamified items. You know, they have like a 3D builder, but if I'm gonna be honest, uh, the online experience across the board for the company is not really caught up yet um, with, you know, where you should argue it's at. Uh, they are making the investments and rolling out uh, updates on that right now through the third quarter. So, you know, it's looking like things are going to improve on quality there and let this be a bit better of a sales driver going forward. All right. Let's talk maybe some of the financials um, just to kind of give listeners some context. You already mentioned how many stores they have. How much do they generate in revenue? What kind of margins do they currently have? And do you think this is a business? What do you think growth looks like on, on both the top and bottom line? Yeah. So just on a you know last four quarters basis, um, their sales are 443 and a half million about. Uh, their gross margins are pretty high to it, 52%. Uh, and that's despite some slippage from them advancing inventory orders and, uh, you know, higher freight costs, both of which are going to be reversing going forward. So, you know, they have wiggle room for incremental improvement. Uh, their operating margin also is over 12% right now, which despite those pressures, um, you know, freight was a 400 basis point loss um, in Q2, still near the historical highs of their range. Um, I think the big difference is that um, you know, there's embedded higher margins from operational efficiencies the company's gained. Uh, you know, all their 70% of their online sales are fulfilled in their physical store locations rather than a warehouse. So that's been a driver in giving them operating leverage because just increased volume in stores is creating a better profit profile for the revenue the company generates. And it's also lower incremental shipping costs than shipping out of their warehouses. Um, and, you know, one of the things I did in my research of the company was I sold you know, I went to about a dozen of them myself, but what I did is I went one day in like December and just made one completely on my own just to see what the selling process was like. And there's a lot of upselling within uh, the business line. Um, you know, before you make the bear, you can put a sound effect in it or beating heart. You can throw in a scent, you know, accessories, um, you know, at checkout, you get to potentially spend a couple extra dollars on a box. Um, it's reliant on well-trained staff and based on the stuff I've seen, they don't really have too high churn in their part-time worker force, which is good. Um, but it's allowing them to a lot, unlock a lot of incremental profit. So um, I think compared to the past, and this kind of goes into a bit of the valuation side, um, the profit margins they're getting are more durable than before. And that um, you know unlocks some upside opportunity in the future. Are they growing? It kind of, I mean, obviously there's been that a bit of a mall apocalypse headwind. Um, are they kind of growing despite that? Yeah. So through the first half of the year, their sales are up over double digits from the prior year. Um, Q1 saw some benefits from 
the UK and Ireland side reopening uh, fully. Uh, so their sales growth for that quarter was about 28, 29%, but domestically was uh, about 20%. Um, and Q2 domestic saw growth of around 10%, despite it being completely lapsed from stimulus um, with the additional inflationary pressures layered on. So um, Europe's a bit weaker. Uh, US is still growing strong. That's obviously about, you know, just shy of 90% of the retail sales. And uh, there's a path for growth there going forward too, through both in-person. Um, you know, they've been pretty lucky without having the strongest digital marketing strategy to have a good amount of their product lines just become TikTok trends uh, and kind of go off on social media and have things like the build of air date come through online that has really encouraged a lot of teenagers and young adults to come into the store. And those aren't things that will likely give up. Uh, so there's a pretty good domestic runway for, you know, just the original business to grow without considering uh, all the other incremental stuff that they're layering on. Right. And it seems like it's really important for, you know, it's pretty easy to get those people that are below, the kids below 10 to love, you know, a stuffed bear product, but getting them to still be associated with the brand. And then when they have kids later, you know, it's kind of, uh, I think of it similarly to the, the Nintendo experience with, you know, parents playing Mario Kart with their kids. But let's talk about valuation. The biggest thing that popped out to me was how cheap the stock was. Why? And correct me if I'm wrong, what is causing investors to give it an earnings multiple below five? Because uh, that really stood out to me when looking at this. Yeah. So uh, they did have a one-time tax benefit uh, in Q4. So if you take that out, they're, they're under six right now still. But, you know, from my estimates, at least... Expensive. That's expensive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, if you're going a full year, they'll probably still be under five. So, gotcha. you know, really cheap. And I think the main reason is that um, this was a stock that was, uh, you know, the kind of small cap hedge fund group got pretty popular in 2014, 2015. Uh, you know, the new management team had just taken over and things were starting to turn around. Um, and then uh, the impact of Amazon on mall traffic really hit in 2015. And Build-A-Bear was obviously very concentrated in malls at the time. Uh, and the stock turned out to be a pretty classic value trap alongside basically all their mall-based retailers. Um, that's pretty stuck in the pricing narrative, especially since there's zero... Um, you know, public analyst coverage of the company that's not sponsored by BuildGrow themselves. The one sell-side analyst that covers them is paid, you know, 40K a year by the company just so they can have something out there. Um, but since 2018, no companies, you know, independently covered them. And that prevents a lot of information about the actual changes that have happened to the fundamentals of the company from being more properly reflected in the price. Um, the other point to that is also the potential um, that people believe that the margin gains they've had, uh, or the sales growth, you know, they're about 50% over 2019 levels are, you know, not sustainable and going to mean revert. Um, and, you know, if, you know, that scenario were to pan out, obviously the stock is not as cheap on a forward basis that it looks to be on a last 12 months basis. What's sort of their capital allocation strategy? Are they returning cash to shareholders? Yeah. So, um, I think one of the unique factors of this company is they have zero debt and have not for any point uh, in the last 10 years, and they don't really look like they're planning to take on debt. So all of their excess cash that they generate uh, has the opportunity to go back to shareholders because um, their growth avenues and their maintenance capex are not expensive. Altogether, they're you know at max three and a half percent of sales, three and a quarter percent of sales. 
Um, so in the past 12 months so far, they, they did, a, you know, dollar 25 a share, about a $20 million special dividend in December. Uh, and at the same time, they also announced a 25 million buyback authorization. That was completed, that original buyback on August 9th. And they took out around 10% of the outstanding shares, a little less than that. And they already announced a new $50 million buyback. That's, you know, from the current price could take out, you know, just under 25% of the shares outstanding. Um, and, you know, they have about 14 and a half million in cash right now. And, you know, based on the inventory flow changes throughout the year, uh, as we get to the end of the fiscal year, they should see an inflow of about another 16 million of cash. Um, based on the buyback pace they were doing in the first half of the year, uh, of the fiscal year, um, you know, they're on pace to be able to pull out that whole authorization within 18 months uh, and basically return over 25% back to shareholders in a pretty quick clip. Would it make sense for them to add some debt here? It just feels like they could lever up and buy back. Uh, yeah, and and activists were pressuring for that. Um, I just don't, it, it could theoretically make sense, especially because they're not levered basically like any of, of their other comps. Although, you know, in this case, you could argue that means they deserve a premium to their equity valuation just because of that. Um, you know, I think um, it's not really in line with historical practices for the business and they don't want to necessarily take added risk, um, especially if, you know, every other mall-based company is starting to see headwinds kind of pile onto them the way that they've been able to avoid. Um, and they just, to be frank, don't need that capital to, to drive growth. So they don't want to necessarily lever up to just take out shares when they have the cash flow to buy back a lot uh, without needing to do that. If you're listening to this ad right now, we know you're already a listener to our show, but for our avid listeners, we've also started a paid membership service called Chit Chat Money Plus that extends beyond just our podcast. Every Tuesday, subscribers get access to one not so deep dive research episode that covers everything you need to know about a company. You also get an email newsletter with our written show notes, important charts, a transcript of each show and access to our Chit Chat Money research files. Chit Chat Money Plus costs $5 a month. You can subscribe directly through Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or if you listen on another platform, click the link in the show notes to go through the simple steps of signing up. If you're a regular listener to the show, we think the membership will provide tons of additional value. On top of the stock research episodes, members will get one Arch Capital Fund episode a month where we outline why we bought, sold, or continue to hold a stock in the Arch Capital Investment Fund, along with shows on our broader investment strategy. Sign up and become a Chit Chat Money Plus subscriber today. We can't wait for you to join our community. All right. What about, uh, so you mentioned the activist investors briefly there, who it sounds like they've maybe had activists, different inv activist investors throughout the years who yeah. are uh, vying for changes right now. And then kind of what changes are they advocating for? Just that lever up? There's been more than just that. Uh, so one of them was David Keenan. Uh, Keenan Wealth Management, and he has a long story with the company. He was an activist, you know, uh, well before uh, COVID or anything like that. He actually got a board seat in 2019, um, left the board seat in 2020, went back to being an activist. Um, so last fall, he published an open letter that was saying, you know, they should go into to pet products, which now they are. Um, they should go into NFTs, which now they are and and he admits it isn't really you know sales driver so much as you know ability to generate extra marketing um they should start buying back stock which they've done substantially um 
And because of the execution on not just the existing business, but you know, uh, him being able to push management and the board to be open to you know opening new business lines and becoming much more friendly to shareholders and capital return. Um, you know, he used to say that the CEO was you know not a winner. Um, but he upped his stake in the company by 25% last week and now owns over 8% of the business. So his tune's clearly changed uh, by a large amount. The other one is um, Carlo Canel, uh, who's you know, a pretty well-known activist investor in the small cap space. And he's also been involved with the company for many, many years. Um, in July, he had a private conversation with the company where he told them to you know, do a sale leaseback of their company-owned um, distribution center get over $30 million from that, draw down their credit revolver of $25 million, um, take some, some of the cash balance and do a tender offer to take out in between 40 and 66% of the company's shares, depending on the leverage ratio they were to take on. Um, you know, he says that the buyback authorization is, you know, directionally a positive move, but it's not what he wants. So he put out something else in um, early September after the, the, uh, quarterly release telling them to just do what he said or have all the board resign, basically. Um, and he owns about 11% of the company right now. So together, the two of them have a lot of the business on their hands. Um, and, you know, I think they just both really don't like that the business was being valued as low as it is. Um, but uh, Canel is the one that's clearly more dissatisfied out of the two at the moment. You know, Keenan sees this as a buying opportunity. It's the first time he's bought shares uh, in about two years. What do you think of the management team? Yeah. So in terms of execution, uh, they've been doing great. You know, um, they were doing a good job initially when they, they most of them came on in 2013 and they had a good initial turnaround and they were just caught off guard like most people that operated mall-based stores. Um, with the declining mall foot traffic in the mid-2010s. Um, they were making quietly a lot of moves to try to diversify the business. And, you know, by 2018, you know, they were down from that 92% mark of, you know, traditional mall stores to 75%. So they were making the shifts and it just wasn't necessarily coming through into the results yet. Um, and COVID kind of accelerated a lot what they were doing. And with the success of the business, gave them more optionality to, uh, pursue the growth avenues to drive longer term success. Um, and they've also done a good job of navigating the current supply chain issues for the most part, um, a lot better than their peers. Um, the one downside and this kind of goes into, um, you know, whether or not, you know, it'd be, you know, takeout target is um, the board itself doesn't really own much equity in the company. And despite the CEO and CFO having, you know, substantial equity stakes in the business, uh, their comp packages are pretty pretty cushy, uh, so it's not necessarily aligned in their best interest to sell out the company rather than do what they can to maximize value for it as a public business. Gotcha. Now, speaking of the take private bid, you guys discussed that in that write-up. Yeah. What is the opportunity there? What sort of premium do you think could be reasonable here? Because I look at the earnings multiple and I said, I think, you know, KKR, one of those companies, could really take this out at a decent price and also... You know, you could see a 50%, even 100% premium uh, for current shareholders. Yeah, I think the important thing to note there is that if it were to ever be taken out, you'd need to have a large premium on it because the especially the activist shareholders, but most of the shareholder base would not be satisfied with this thing being bought out at, uh, you know, let's say 
20, 30% premium to today's price. Uh, they'd want it to be a valuation that was, you know, at a minimum five to six times EBITDA, which would bring, you know, the stock to, you know, at least 25, 30 a share. Um, you know, in that case, uh, the model that Paul put together still shows being pretty attractive for doing a, you know, a levered buyout. Um, you know, you'd be able to get a nice swing on the equity if you started with like about 112 million, if you're buying the, the EV out at around 400 million and take it up to, you know, potentially five, 600 million within five to six years, um, you know, assuming proper execution. Um, I think it just goes to the point, like I said, though, in terms of, you know, it not necessarily being aligned with management, but from a private side, you know, it's the potential to get a lot of returns if they can convince them to do it at the right price. Okay. We have one more question here, and I think we have to hit on this because we really haven't talked much yeah. of the risk yet. What could go wrong with an investment in Build-A-Bear? What are you watching as any sort of indicators that your thesis might be wrong? Yeah. So, yeah, I think the number one thing is how their store mix continues to evolve over time, because even though they're much more diversified from malls than they were before, they need to keep doing that. They can't get complacent and stop just because about 99% of the stores are profitable right now. Um, if they just stay where they are, you know, things would probably eventually change, especially in malls as foot traffic trends keep on. And that put them in a bad spot. So that also means that the new store concept they're trying out, like Build-A-Bear Adventure, which is, you know, uh, a large, it's a pretty large off-mall premise idea where they have, you know, arcades, their own kind of more regional distribution centers. Uh, and other bells and whistles inside of that business, uh, you know, to really emphasize more parties and activities there. Um, you know, if that isn't pan out or turn out to be a good investment, you know, that might make it more difficult for the business to keep its physical footprint rotation going because they can't start to pan these out in certain areas to leave malls. Um, so that's one risk, you know, um, another risk as well is that, you know, the online stuff of the past couple of years, you know, kind of mean reverts back to trend that the improvements they're investing in right now that they're going to be rolling out throughout this quarter don't do enough. Um, and people start leaving the online experience. Like they also lose operating leverage in that scenario. So that hits margins on their stores and would make, you know, any lack of moving away from malls even worse. Um, the inability to really have their own IP develop out as sellable also matters. Um, you know, about 30 to 50% of their sales in a year, depending on, you know, what movie release schedules look like, tend to be licensed products. Um, and while it's a big revenue and profit drive for the company because those come at premium price points to sell, it also means that they're more reliant on timely releases of, you know, content from third parties. And, you know, this isn't just a movie industry thing. This goes to a lot of industries, but delays have been pretty pervasive, uh, not just in COVID, but increasingly beforehand. Um, so they have their own product pipeline that's pretty robust at the moment uh, and generating a lot of its own hype. Um, you know, they've, the Pink Frog or Oxalotl have been a couple of their items that have done really well. But if they can't actually keep developing new items at the same success rate as they have before, um, that could be a risk for the business. And the other main one is that these new initiatives that they're trying uh, to do don't actually pan out. You know, if they do, it's great because they're all require pretty minimal capital investment from the company. So they're very high ROIs. Um, but let's say that these vending machines that they're doing, you know, 
can't be replicated out of airports or, or major international airports, and it can't grow uh, as much as people hoped it could. Or um, their online gift box thing that they're trying that uh, launched in January uh, just doesn't gain traction. Or you know they're investing in inventory for these pajama products and they just don't sell through. Or the pet products they're doing uh, through outbound licensing you know gets canceled after a year. That would take those all would take away you know several points of the investment thesis and have to make you reevaluate the investment. All right, one more follow up here. Have they discussed any partnerships with virtual goods companies because or gaming companies? Because I was thinking. I mean, a partnership with Roblox seems absolutely ideal for a company like this, and it would mitigate any threat from, you know, younger kids spending more time on uh, mobile games, virtual goods, and that's where their dollars are going. Yeah, so it's it's funny you say that because, you know, one of the other announcements in their, you know, quarterly call outside of uh, the pet stuff and the pajama products uh, was that they're actually partnering with a video game company to come out with a game um, or to be, you know, have product placement within games going forward. So they're looking to be much more involved virtually outside of just this NFT project that they're working on. Yeah, uh, no, really no NFT. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, it, it's 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 like the you know some of the investors said all it would really serve as for NFTs at least be marketing, but um, you know the video game stuff is a much you know more sustainable attention grabber for a going forward basis. So if they're involved in video games or have developments um, that are pushed out that are either taken up on. Uh, platforms like Roblox or just kid-friendly games that you know parents can throw in front of their you know th- you know three to five-year-olds on their iPads. Um, that will be a very positive momentum contributor for the business and staying in front of uh, families' minds. Um, but that's going to take time to actually develop and come to fruition. This whole you know pet item, for example, took about a year from discussions to being announced uh, within the company. So them announcing that they're working on it today still means there's probably you know a ways to go before it's a public facing item. Do they have any like, so obviously a lot of their sales, I think you said it was 30 to 50% comes from licensed content. Yeah. Is that concentrated in like just a few companies? Like, is it just straight like Disney and I don't know, do they have Nintendo products? I'm Pokemon, guessing? yeah. Pokemon yeah. is big, um, I'm assuming, yeah. Or is it kind of more diverse? Is there any concentration risk in terms of, in terms of licensed content? Yeah. So their, their biggest licensed drivers are Pokemon, Animal Crossing, um, Harry Potter, and then uh, other Disney product lines like The Mandalorian, because apparently everyone likes Baby Yoda for some reason. <laughs> um, so there's some concentration risk within key IPs that would be larger sales drivers, um, but their licensed IP collection is pretty broad within those categories. It's not like they're just selling um, you know, one or two Pokemon. You know, they have new product rollouts of those pretty regularly. What they've been doing, for example, with Pokemon is um, all the evolutions of like the Eevee Pokemon, because apparently it goes into like, you know, 20, 50 different things. Uh, oh, I've talked with people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah all you know, the generations, I, I it's exactly. Yeah. So they've been rolling those out incrementally over time to kind of, you know, have a new excuse for people to come back or buy something online or come in store. Um, and they, are working pretty hard to actually expand their existing product relationships with companies like Disney. They just got Disney princesses introduced uh, over the summer. So they're kind of expanding the variety with their major partners of, you know, important IPs that they can have. Um, But um, despite those concentrations, uh, 
the fact that movies still come out pretty regularly, either uh, streaming only like Turning Red, which is a good drive for the company, or stuff that can be in theater like Sonic the Hedgehog, um, gives some freshness to their product mix on licensed IP that kind of dilutes the concentration and just the fact that um, a good amount of their licensed IP stuff is also um, just accessories. So, you know, they have a partnership with the NFL and the MLB for every team or and the NBA for every team for clothes to put on, you know, your own bears so that goes to sports. They do that for college sports as well. You know, I never got stuck onto college stuff, maybe because I go to a D2 school for sports for the most part. Um, but uh, I'd say the risk there is more related to, you know, extended delays on new releases of movies or streamable items rather than um, just being stuck in a couple of key IPs. What's uh, what's their exposure to Japan? Because I hear you mentioned Pokemon and Animal Crossing, and I'm thinking, why don't they have 50 stores across the that country? Yeah, so they actually don't have stores in Japan right now. They used to. Um, they had you know a franchisee that had, I think at one point, about a little over 10 years ago, about a dozen stores and malls there. Um, but Japan's shift to online sales generation away from malls has been kind of similar to the US. So, you know, unlike the Middle East, where malls are, uh, and like the UAE, for example, where malls are really, really good for sales generation, um, that was not happening in Japan. And that business uh, for that franchisee wound down, you know, I think considering a lot of their licensed IPs like Pokemon, and they could probably move into region specific license IP in Japan in particular, for certain product lines, you know, I'm sure people get their Dragon Ball stuff or whatnot, um, or One Piece or Naruto and whatnot. Um, you know, I think there's an opportunity they find the right partner, but they probably wouldn't want to re-enter Japan uh, under company-owned operations. They might want to either wholesale or find a franchisee that has a better strategy for locations. Gotcha. And Splatoon, I mean, there's tons of... Yeah, Splatoon 3 just came out. I saw they have like the ice cream for that and everything. It's, <laughs> it's you know, a countrywide phenomena there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you have any more questions? I'm good. I think that's all the questions we have um, for listeners that enjoyed this and want to keep up with you. What's the best place for them to do that? Yeah. So the easiest way to just DM me is Twitter. My handle there is just Strat Becker. It's literally just my full name because um, I was named after a Fender guitar, which means I can't be creative about anything else. Uh, uh, so that's the easiest way just to DM me. Um, you know, if you're subscribed to the newsletter and you just leave a comment on it at any point or, you know, it's in your inbox, you send an email back. I see all those as well. So those are a couple of easy ways to get in touch with me uh, if you want to talk more about this or any of the other things I've worked on before. Perfect. Well, that is going to do it. Brett and I want to remind the listeners that we are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital. So clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again, Strat, for coming on the show. We will see you guys next time. <laughs>